History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spectacular people welcome to history ghost bump redux i am your host diane and this is kelly kelly on this episode we're going back to the stanley hotel in estes park colorado one of my favorite towns in all the world i can't wait to get there myself one day i know i would love for you to see this hotel and shocking even though i lived there for over 30 years of my life and i've been outside of the hotel and watched fireworks and such I don't believe I've ever been inside the Stanley Hotel. What is wrong with you? (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm like, how did I ever let that happen? Well, on this episode, we're going to bring you the history and haunts of that. Kelly, are you ready to go back? I'm ready. Estes Park is a gorgeous mountain city and one of Diane's favorite places in Colorado, as she just said. F.O. Stanley would build the Stanley Hotel in this town, a hotel made famous by Stephen King in his book, The Shining. King reputedly had unexplained experiences when he was a guest. The Shining was a story of a haunted man, a psychic boy, and a haunted hotel, and the Stanley Hotel really does have a reputation for being haunted. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Stanley Hotel. The Stanley Hotel is a magnificent hotel. As I said, I've been there a couple of times. Unfortunately, I've never stayed there. It's set up on the hill right above Estes Park, which is a beautiful little mountain town, very typical of these mountain towns, or maybe even some of your historic downtowns. You got these antique shops and other little shops. And Estes Park is also the gateway to Rocky Mountain National Park. And it's not uncommon to see lots and lots of wildlife, especially elk. And I've been there in the fall when they're bugling. It is a very interesting sound. It's cool, but it's also... A little bit creepy. Yes. And this is a park that I would drive to go hike all the time when I'd be bird watching and stuff. And it was my first encounter with a tick. (laughs) 
I've been with you when you've had a tick. Yeah, that one was a little one. This was a big one. It was crawling up my jeans. I'm driving on the road and I look down and I'm like, ah, I stopped my truck immediately and jumped out and was just like flapping around and get that thing off of me. Again, when we were driving, that's when I saw the one on your leg. (laughs) But it was attached. It was attached. At first, I thought it was a freckle. I was like, is that a freckle on my Freckles leg? Freckles don't have legs, darling. <laughs> like, I don't ever remember seeing that one before. Thank God you have pincher little nails there and got rid of it for me. The indigenous people came to this area around 10,000 years ago, although this wouldn't be their year-round home. The Utes would make this their mountain territory many thousands of years later until the Arapaho drove them past the Continental Divide. And anybody who's been to Colorado, I'm sure, has stopped when you're up in the mountains and taken a picture at that Continental Divide sign. It's very cool. The U.S. government would acquire the future Estes Park in the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. The first settler would be a Kentuckian named Joel Estes. Wonder where they got the name from. Gee. Estes would build a home here in 1860, but his family would only stay seven years because as the wife found out and said, I'm not doing this anymore, the winters were too harsh. I'd be saying the same thing. Their cabin was turned into guest accommodations. Estes Park was named after Joel Estes by William Byers in 1864. Byers was the editor and owner of the Rocky Mountain News, Colorado's first newspaper, and they still, I think, have that newspaper there, at least when I was still living there about 15 years ago, they did. An English earl would change the landscape when he arrived in the 1870s. Lord Dunraven bought up 15,000 acres and built the Estes Park Hotel, and a stage line was soon bringing visitors in 1874. And this guy didn't really get that land in a good way. He swindled a lot of people to acquire the land. He was not a very good guy. Colorado's gold rush hit, and miners flocked to the mountains to find their fortune in silver and gold. Lulu City became a booming, ruckus town in the northwest area of Estes Park, but within three years it had gone bust because the mineral riches weren't that good. Ranchers and farmers then came for the water. A wealthy entrepreneur would arrive in the early 1900s and change the future for Estes Park. That entrepreneur was Freeland Oscar Stanley. Everyone called him F.O., and he was born in June of 1849. He was an American inventor, hotelier, and architect. He was also a twin. His brother Francis was an enterprising young lad, too, and the brothers got their start making wooden tops and selling them at the age of nine. They also refined and sold maple sugar. In their teens, they learned how to make violins. Very well-rounded boys, goodness. They were. I mean, entrepreneurs is an enterprising definitely describes them well. The brothers also developed a photographic dry plate process, allowing film to be sold in rolls, which they sold to George Eastman. And who would have ever thought we'd all be carrying around cell phones today? So now George Eastman, his stuff is obsolete and all that stuff, too. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's still people who put rolls of film and stuff, but not much. The brothers would go on to found the Stanley Motor Carriage Company, which built steam-powered vehicles. They produced the Stanley Steamer. Shall we go down a little rabbit hole, Kelly? This time I'm jumping first. Okay. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. So Stanley Steamer isn't just a carpet cleaning company that you see ads for on TV. (laughs) There actually was such a thing as a Stanley Steamer. And here's how it would work. It took 20 minutes or more to fire up a Stanley, which was about the same amount of time that it took to harness a horse to a buggy or saddle up a horse. Until the electric starter, which was introduced in 1912, the advantage of starting a Stanley with a match rather than having to crank it, which was necessary with internal combustion gas cars of the year, was a strong selling point, especially to women. You can imagine they didn't want to get out there doing all that cranking. Sure. 
Think of a gas stove in which the pilot lights the burner and the burner heats the water. The Stanley has a pilot that lights the burner to make steam in the boiler. Additionally, Stanley steamer fuel is under pressure and must be vaporized to burn. To understand this aspect, think of a Coleman stove or lantern. First, the fuel is pressurized by a little thumb pump. Then the fuel is turned on and lit with a match, causing a sputtering of the stove flame or lamp mantle. This sputtering indicates raw, unvaporized fuel. As soon as the flame heats the liquid to vaporization in the Coleman, the flame becomes a low, hot blue flame on the burner or a bright white light in the lamp mantle. And I remember this from when I was a kid and we'd go camping and my dad had that original Coleman lantern that he would have to pump it and everything. After the Stanley Pilot is lit, it burns 5 to 10 minutes to heat the steel kerosene vaporizer. Then the burner fuel is turned on, vaporizes, ignites, and the lit burner heats the water in the boiler, usually taking about 15 minutes from that point. The boiler is a fire tube boiler, providing additional heating surface in the tubes, which increases the 1 to 2 square feet of the burner plate to as much as 100 square feet of heating surface. Once the steam pressure gets high enough, that's about 200 to 500 PSI, the throttle lets the steam out of the top of the boiler, back through a superheater that sits above the flame of the burner, then back out of the burner through a steam line into the cylinder block of the engine at the rear of the car. The engine, which is a double-acting power on both strokes, simple versus compound, two-cylinder steam engine lets steam into the cylinders through D-valves in the steam chest. I know this is getting to be a lot of mechanical, but... (laughs) I'm like, good grief, it's a lot of information. (laughs) The steam pushes the pistons back and forth, Piston rods connect with the crank of the engine, translating horizontal action to rotary action, which turns the drive gear on the crank. Drive gears married to a pinion or driven differential gear on the rear axle, turning the axle and wheels, thus moving the car. I'll jump on my horse. Thank you very much. (laughs) I I think it would be easier to saddle up a horse. All right, let's get out of this hole. Hang on. I just so happened to bring my steam-powered trampoline. It'll bounce us right out of here. Is it going to take us 15 minutes for it to light up the pistons and the cylinders and all that good stuff? Well, F.O. Stanley became the headmaster of a high school in Maine, where he met teacher and pianist Flora Joan Record Tylston. They married in 1876. In 1881, F.O. contracted tuberculosis, as did his brother Solomon, who died from the disease. F.O. decided to get more active, and he started opening several new businesses. But in 1903, the TB came back hard. F.O. was given about six months to live by his doctor. So like other people fighting TB, F.O. moved to Colorado hoping to heal his lungs. That dry air was supposed to be good for him. Estes Park was recommended to him, and soon he was helping build infrastructure like roads, sewers, a power company, a bank, and a water company. F.O. and Flora dreamed of turning Estes Park into a resort town, and they decided to build a hotel. The Stanley Hotel was built in 1909 in the Georgian Revival style, designed by architect T. Robert Wagner, with help from Freeland. This was an eight-shaped building with perpendicular wings flanking the lobby. The four-story structure had taken two years to build and was made from wood and rock that came from the nearby mountains and had pale yellow siding and a red hip roof. A hexagon-shaped bell tower is a main feature along with a peaked pediment with box dormers and six double sets of dormant columns. It's a very cool-looking hotel. There were 150 rooms at that time. No expense was spared when it came to amenities because F.O. was catering to the rich. There was running water, electricity, and telephones. The kitchen was one of the first to have all-electric appliances. Since this was a summer resort, heat was not installed. There were stables where Stanley would store Stanley steamers and use them to transport tourists from the train to the hotel and through Rocky Mountain National Park. This helped put Rocky Mountain National Park on the map for eastern tourists. Stanley had basically started the first touring company for the area. 
Those Stanley steamers were nicknamed mountain wagons and they could seat a dozen passengers. The interior of the hotel was grand with a spacious and sunny lobby, a music room where Flora loved to play the piano, a billiard room, a tavern, and they had this big dining room. They had meeting rooms and they had many lounges as well. The hotel was filled with beautiful furniture. There were many activities to take part in as well, with a swimming pool, tennis court, bowling alley, golf course, croquet courts, and there was an orchestra promenading around the grounds. The hotel had its own orchestra. So Freeland really provided high-class entertainment for his clientele that came to the hotel. The hotel had the slogan that it was expensive, but it was worth it. In 1910, the Manor House was constructed, which was a smaller version of the hotel, and steam-heated so it could house tourists year-round. Stanley didn't name the hotel after himself, but rather after the man for whom he bought the land, Hotel Dunraven. So remember that Lord Dunraven that owned everything? That's who he got the land from. So this was the Hotel Dunraven at first. So glad that's not what it's called today. FO owned the hotel until 1926 when the Stanley Corporation took it over. It went back to FO in 1929 and he kept it until 1930 when the Estes Park Hotel Company bought it. FO still hung out at the hotel though and enjoyed rocking on the porch. And I've heard tell that one of his favorite rocking chairs is still there today. Nice. He died at the age of 93 in 1940. So much for the six months doctors had given him to live when he was diagnosed with TB again. I guess the dry air really does work. That was a ripe old age for those days. Yeah. And I mean, if you think he had tuberculosis twice. I always thought if you had TB, you died from it until I went to Waverly Hills and heard about some of the people. There was one woman there that kept getting it, too. She'd like recover and then got it again. And the Able Management Company took it over in 1946 and had it for 20 years. Then ownership passed through several hands, changing every couple of years. The hotel deteriorated over those years, and I think it's because it was passing through so many hands, nobody was really taking care of it. It went through bankruptcy in the early 1980s, and Frank Normally, who had owned the hotel previously in the late 1970s, got the hotel, and he renovated it, adding heat in 1984. So they didn't have heat until 1984. Wow. Bankruptcy hit again, and in 1995, the current owner bought the property and brought it back to life. Changes continue even up until 2022 with plans to transform the ballroom into a restaurant. I'm not exactly happy about that, but okay. Bathroom updates, more food options, and more rooms, with the acquisition of another hotel, Fall River Village Resort. The Stanley itself has 192 guest rooms and 31 condo units today. Initially, the owners embraced the haunted reputation of their property and its association with Stephen King's The Shining. They even built a hedge maze in 2015. For a brief, insane moment, the Stanley Hotel halted ghost tours and hunts and tried to do away with their haunted reputation. It backfired horribly and everything is rolling again. Thank God. (laughs) Yeah, I tried to go back and see if I could find any articles about what year that was, because I know it was probably about five years ago, something like that, five or six years ago, because I remember us talking about it in the Spectacular crew and everybody was like, Are they insane? They stopped their ghost tours and hunts there. And I had thought that they had a new owner at the time who wanted to get rid of that reputation. They wanted to be a more high class place and cater to that. It was still the same owner. So I don't know if they did a refurb and then went, we want to go forward business minded or something. And then they had all of their tourism start dropping off and they were like, "Uh, that was stupid. (laughs) No kidding. Stephen King probably was the most influential person when it came to the Stanley's reputation. But before we get into that side of things, King wasn't the only famous person to visit the Stanley. The unsinkable Molly Brown, 
John Philip Sousa, Theodore Roosevelt, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Johnny Cash, the Emperor and Empress of Japan, and Hollywood stars like Jim Carrey, Jeff Daniels, Rebecca De Mornay, and Stephen Weber have all stayed here. Stephen King and his wife Tabitha were living in Boulder, Colorado in 1974, and they decided to visit the Stanley Hotel on a recommendation from a friend. King was experiencing writer's block with a new book he was working on called Dark Shine that featured a roller coaster that ate people. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm thinking that's coming off of Maximum Overdrive. You know, he's got this truck that is evil. Right. And you've got Christine, which is an evil car. So, hey, why couldn't a roller coaster be evil, too? He wasn't happy with the setting. When the Kings checked into the hotel, they were the only guests for that night because the hotel was getting ready to close for the season. And as you will remember, they don't have any heat either. King wandered the empty corridors and imagined what it would be like to be in this desolate hotel and have someone die there. He visited the bar where Grady served him drinks as he sat alone. King returned to his room, room 217, and by the time he fell asleep, he had the whole book in his mind. King changed the hotel and his book to The Overlook, but everyone knows it was a Stanley that inspired him. In honor of the book and movie, the Stanley Hotel launched the Spirited Shining Tour, which is an hour-long tour that visits the Shining Suite in the 1909 Caretaker's Cottage, with a recreation of the bathroom from the movie and an axe from the film. There's also a channel in the hotel that loops The Shining 24 hours, seven days a week. And fun fact, that iconic scene where Jack Nicholson is doing the Here's Johnny, where he's taking the axe and chopping at the door. Yeah. They actually had to put on a real door because the fake door, he was getting through far too quickly because he used to be a fireman and knows how to use an axe. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So they're like, no, you're really going to have to chop through a real door. Yeah, I don't remember how many scenes it took, but they had to keep replacing the door because he got through it too fast and then they put a real door on there. Yeah, because I mean, for most people, they'd be like, okay, I'm sorry, an axe isn't going to go right through a door, especially maybe our modern doors that we have in our houses because a lot of them are hollow. But if you've got a real solid door that the Stanley would have been built with, yeah. Exactly. And I don't know if Stephen King actually had any real experiences in this room 217, but everybody wants to stay in that room. And there's a plate that's right next to the door. They had to do something to replace that and make it so that people couldn't get it off the wall because oh. people kept stealing it. And then there's you can see there, there was damage on the wall from people trying to pry it out. Good grief. The gift shop actually has the little plate now with room 217. So you don't have to steal one. You can just buy one. <laughs> and now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. There are lots of ghost stories and experiences connected to the hotel. Let's start with our first owners, the Stanleys. Flora haunts the music room. Apparently, a lot of people hear music playing in the music room when there's no one there. 
And a lot of times when they hear the music, they walk into the music room and then the music stops. They can see the keys on the piano moving before they enter the room. And then they cross the threshold and the music stops and there's nobody there. But a gentleman from Boulder, Colorado, in 2004, he heard music playing from the music room. And when he looked in, he saw a young woman playing the piano. But as he walked across the room to watch her, she suddenly turned into an old lady and then she disappeared. That is strange. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) The Rocky Mountain Ghost Explorers investigated the Stanley Hotel and they have a story about Flora Stanley. They claim they got her apparition on video. The apparition remained on film, then started to fade away before completely disappearing. They couldn't believe what the camera caught. They'd never seen anything like it before. They claimed the video showed all the facial features and jewelry. They believe the apparition looked just like a photo of Flora Stanley that is hanging in a hallway. She's even wearing two pieces of jewelry like the apparition had on, which was a double necklace. She was smiling. You could see her hair, her eyes, her nose, her mouth. Now, when I looked back at this picture, and I don't know if I'll be able to find it again to put it up on Instagram, but they had like indicated where they thought everything was. So they're like, here's her hair, here's her eyes, here's her nose, here's her mouth. If they hadn't have made those indications, I don't know that I would have actually seen a figure in the picture. Oh, okay. So when they're saying, yeah, you could see everything clearly in this picture... No, it's just like every other ghost picture we've seen where it's very pixelated and it's like, okay, maybe, maybe not. Squint your eyes, look sideways at it, and then maybe you catch it. Yes. (laughs) I'm not sure if it's legit, but if they caught something, it looks interesting. The window panes, the way they're made, you can tell that there seems to be something there because all of them look black except for these two that have the figure standing in it. They're a lighter color. So I don't know if it's just lighting or was there something actually there in the window. And Flora isn't without her husband here. Freeland likes to haunt the lobby, which is just gorgeous and has a replica of a Stanley steamer on display. There's a massive sweeping staircase with a palladium window flanked by two six-pane windows and a window seat. Every four balusters in the railing has a different turning style. Staff claim to see him surveying the lobby when they look up briefly from something they're doing, and then he disappears. A rocking chair is sometimes seen rocking on its own. Katie was running the front desk and saw F.O.'s favorite rocking chair moving on its own through one of the large lobby windows a week before Halloween in 2009. She said, I was standing at the registration desk and happened to glance out the window across from me. The large white wooden rocker that was known to be F.O.'s favorite was slowly rocking back and forth. I watched for a moment, then curious, I walked out to the veranda to study it closer. There was absolutely no wind. The lobby and veranda were quiet as our season was winding down in October. The thing that struck me about the chair's movement is that it had a weight to the rocking, like someone was indeed sitting in it, their legs pumping it back and forth in a slow, deliberate way, not like it would if a wind was blowing it. None of the other chairs were moving. So I sat down in a chair next to it and asked if I was bothering him, and if I was, then to please rock faster. Immediately, the chair began rocking faster and faster. Oh, wow. Yep. You're bothering me. So <laughs> Get I ju- away, kid. You're <laughs> bothering me. <laughs> You're bothering me. So I jumped up and went back inside. I pointed it out to Jesse, the other front desk employee who was on duty, and he saw it too. About 15 minutes later, I needed to check on a room on the third floor. As I was waiting for the elevator door to open on the lobby floor, I saw a tall man with a white beard and a black tux walking right behind me. I quickly turned to greet the man, and he was nowhere to be found. I decided to check on the veranda again to see if the man walked by the window outside. Again, no one was around, leaving me to believe I saw F.O. Stanley. 
When the elevator opened, I went up to the third floor. As I walked down the hallway approaching the room I was checking on, I saw a huge flash as if someone had taken a picture. However, when I turned the corner, no one was down the hallway, nor did I hear a sound of any kind. I thought it was really interesting that all these unexplained experiences were occurring all within 30 minutes, all in one night. I'm not usually the person that believes in hauntings, but those experiences left me with no explanations. Very cool experiences. Yeah. Marlene Kay was visiting the Stanley Hotel in July of 2009, and author Rebecca Pittman overheard her talking to a group about an experience she had. Pittman shares this in her book, The History and Haunting of the Stanley Hotel. Marlene said, I was in the gift shop just now picking out postcards. She was saying in excited whispers to the four other people in her group, I paid for them and was walking out the door. I had my head down reading the backs of the cards when I saw a man's pants legs coming toward me. I stepped aside to let him pass me, my head still down. He stopped in front of me, blocking my exit from the shop. I felt a little flustered and thought it kind of rude, so I stepped aside again. He moved in front of me again. I looked up at him with a frown on my face. You're not going to believe this. I felt suddenly very cold. He was wearing clothes that did not belong in today, and he had an old-fashioned pointy beard. He turned around, and instead of going into the shop, he walked off toward the room on the other side of the fireplace. When I stepped around the big chair near the fireplace to see where he was going, he was gone. Just gone. There's no way he had time to go into that room without my seeing him. I think I just saw a ghost. And that description sounds like Freeland. He had a pointy beard like that. Very cool. Both Freeland and Flora like the staircase. Kelly, do you remember it was a few years back that there was a picture that made it into the newspapers or something that everybody was sharing? It went viral of what looked like a ghost on the staircase there. I do remember that. And it was like an apparition in a dress. So some people are wondering if that was Flora. And a former ghost tour guide had an experience at the staircase as well. So this guy's name was Rob. He was from Golden, Colorado. And he said, I've had three people on three different occasions on completely different tours report to me as we climb the main staircase that someone or something had just kicked them in the shin. Oh, my. <laughs> this was a new one to me, but all three reports came within a 36-hour period. One woman claimed to be sensitive to environments and said she thought a small boy was following them around and might be responsible for playfully kicking a few people as they climbed the stairs. One woman even showed me her newly red ankle. Huh. And also the scent of roses is smelled here, and Flora wore that perfume. The fourth floor has a lot of paranormal activity. The sounds of children running are heard on this floor. Why would kids be here mostly on the fourth floor, Kelly? Do you know? No. Well, guest children and their staff stayed on the fourth floor. Without their family? Yep. In those days, children were to be seen and, and not, not heard. <laughs> so they were hidden away on the fourth floor. They'd have their dinner in a little corner in the kitchen, the hotel kitchen, while their parents were eating these delicious, scrumptious meals in the main dining room. That's not cool. <laughs> That's probably where the children are being heard in the afterlife. They're like, you shut us up while we're here. We're going to come back and haunt the dang place. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> I think it's unfair. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the reasons why it's fascinating is because obviously the kids didn't die there. So what are they all doing there? Or did they? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> we can make up our own horror movie about the Stanley. The walls ate the kids. No, it was the roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> They're on the fourth floor because they actually build a roller coaster on the roof of the Stanley that the children ride on and then they get eaten. Well, you know, maybe the kids were too much to take care of. So parents just sent them up there. <laughs> and Kelly, we've seen some stinker horror movies. So, I mean, that could be just as good as any of those, right? 
And they have a ghost thief at the Stanley that is known to remove some items like guest jewelry, watches, and luggage, and even a whole suitcase walked out the door. Okay, now that's really not cool. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, are you sure it was a ghost thief? Ghost Hunters did a live six-hour show from the Stanley on Halloween night in 2007. Kelly, did you watch that one? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I tried to stay awake for most of it, but I couldn't. They didn't catch a whole lot of stuff, and they actually debunked a lot of things. But in the ballroom, everything that happened to them in there, they had no explanation for. And they said, you know what? This seems like the real deal in the ballroom. And that's where a lot of the people who work there have had a lot of the experiences. A lot of the employees who work at the hotel will hear what sounds like a party or something going on in the ballroom or like there's a ball going on. And they'll go in there and, of course, there's nothing happening in there. It's completely empty. Well, this is really inspiration for something else, isn't it? You know, the ballroom scene that's in The Shining. Megan Kelly interviewed Jason on her show in 2021, and they talked about the Stanley Hotel. He's been there 15 times. In his room once, he had the closet door unlatch and open on its own. The door then closed again on its own. He had a glass shatter that was next to the bed. The show captured what sounded like a voice saying hello when Grant and Jason were down in the basement at the employee's entrance. A voice said hello again and laughed, and this was all audible. Yeah, you could hear it clear as day. And he was telling Megan about it, and she was playing the clips from it and stuff. And she was like, so you didn't have anybody that had recorded something and was playing it? And he said, nope, and we were doing it live. So everybody that's watching the show is hearing everything together all at the same time. And I clearly was sleeping during that part because I didn't remember (laughs) that. And I was like, oh, that was probably the best evidence they got. Jim Carrey stayed at the Stanley while they filmed Dumb and Dumber. He had an experience that terrified him. He specifically asked to stay in room 217, which is what everybody does. And so you think you're probably going to get something if you go in there. But he only managed to stay there, according to some of the staff, for three hours. So something drove Jim Carrey out of that room within three hours. Dang. He ran down to the lobby in his boxers and asked to be transferred not just to another room, but another hotel. Oh, my. The story behind Room 217 is that there was a housekeeper who worked here. Her name was Elizabeth Wilson, and she'd gone into the room, and she did not realize that there was a gas leak in the room. I don't know if back then they put sulfur smell in gas, because gas doesn't have a smell. I think most people know that, and so now they add a sulfur smell to it so you can tell if there's a leak. And back then, a lot of the lighting, even though they did have electricity, they would use candles a lot as well. So what she did is she went into that room and lit some candles. And it blew out the room and almost killed her. She did survive it. And she did continue to work at the hotel for the time after that. But apparently she does haunt this room or something. That's what people claim. Her apparition has been seen. The toilets flush on their own. Lights turn on and off. It's fascinating to hear that story because she wasn't killed by the explosion. And yet they think that she's still here. So was this just something that was so devastating to her that she's locked into that? Because it's not like she's replaying an event where she's getting blown out of the room. She's actually in the room being seen. So I don't know. Maybe it's residual when she is seen. Maybe. Oh, and then there's this other thing that happens in there. In that room, occasionally people's suitcases will be unpacked for them. Their beds will be made for them. And it's not the regular housekeeper coming in and doing it. So I always say that apparition is more than welcome to travel with me. (laughs) Be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Here's another story about room 217. Another guest who stayed there had the first name of Daniel. He wrote this about his stay at the Stanley that night. 
Midnight had come and gone in room 217 before I saw any paranormal activity. Before calling it a night, I had opened a single window and set up a fan to blow the cool mountain breeze towards my bed. If you listened very carefully, you could just make out the sound of the wind blowing through the trees outside. While I lay sleeping and probably snoring under a mound of blankets, I felt my wife crawl out of bed. She padded across the carpet, either tiptoeing or taking tiny, quiet steps. I opened one sleepy eye, looked at the bedside clock, and then saw my wife standing at the open window. Her face pressed against the screen. You have to see this, she said, and turned to me. She beamed and her dimples deepened, the way I always loved. She said, there's a family of elk just outside, and the fan blew her long hair about her head so she looked like she was either floating or underwater. I stared at her for a long time. My wife had been dead for five years. Oh my God. Did she get into bed with you a lot and get out of bed a lot? Because he just so matter-of-factly, I felt my wife crawl out of bed. Lord Dunraven had owned this land before the Stanleys. He is said to be haunting the hotel, particularly room 407. He likes to stand in the corner of the room closest to the bathroom door. One witness said they had a light constantly turning off and on when they had actually turned the light off. So it would turn itself on and then turn itself off. The witness informed the ghost that they knew of his presence. They also told him that they were just staying two nights and requested that he please turn back on the light. The light came back on later. The lights were off, but noise kept coming from an elevator close by. So they're complaining, going, God, why is that elevator making so much noise? <laughs> I just want a good night's sleep, yeah, man. They're like, the lights keep turning on and off. Now the elevator's making a racket. Problem was that this particular elevator was out of order at the time. Oh. There are other reports of a ghostly face peering out of the window of room 407, even when the room is vacant. And speaking of elevators, of course, they have their old Otis elevator there. And a guest back in 2009 said, my husband and I were visiting the hotel just for the day. We live in Colorado and we were just enjoying the park for a day while driving through Rocky Mountain National Forest. While walking around the lobby, my husband stopped to admire the old elevator. He's such a mechanics nut. He wanted to go for a ride in it. And I was concerned the hotel would frown on us riding up and down if we weren't room guests. He talked me into it, and when the doors opened, exposing the mirrored interior, we both stopped dead. Inside was a small child, wearing a white ruffled dress with a small apron. It was nothing the children of today would be caught dead wearing. She had ringlets and a very pale appearance about her. I felt a chill go up my arms. The door began to close, and my husband stuck his hand in to arrest its motion. When it opened again, she was gone, just like that. I grabbed his arm, and you have never seen two middle-aged people bolt out of a building and down the stone steps so fast in all your life. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Guess we're not riding that elevator. And then we have another for your nose pictures. We know there's cigar smoke smells all over the place. Trust your nose picture. Well, it may be a ghost. Indeed. And we definitely have that going on here. We have this haunting coming out of the pinion room. Deborah and Dennis wrote, we were at the hotel looking it over for my sister's wedding. She had the site narrowed down to three places and asked me and Den to go and check out the Stanley for her. We poked our heads into the music room and the McGregor room, which I liked a lot, and finally into the pinion room. To me, it was too dark and masculine for a wedding reception, and it was made as a men's place where they would Lounge. go and discuss things in the day. I liked the McGregor room better, but Den said he liked the pinion and that you could set up drinks on the veranda outside the door. We walked across the room heading for the veranda doors when all of a sudden this really strong smell like someone was smoking a pipe hit us. 
We both stopped and turned around, expecting to see someone standing there with a pipe, which would have surprised me as the hotel probably didn't allow smoking. There was no one there and the smell got stronger. Den hurried over to the open door leading into the billiard area and no one was there either. By now the smell is so strong that I'm getting a little nauseous. I hate the smell of tobacco. Just as I went to tell him I was leaving and would meet him in the lobby, the smell disappeared. It was so strange. It just cut off like a faucet. I have really long hair and I remember lifting my hair to my nose to smell it, seriously expecting it to smell like tobacco smoke. There was no scent of it at all. I had never smelled smoke that strong in my life and with not a soul in the room other than Den and me. I'm at a total loss. Needless to say, we didn't have the wedding in that room. Yeah, I would imagine not. Carl Pfeiffer and Connor Randall of Hellier fame got their start as paranormal investigators at the Stanley Hotel. They were joined by another investigator named Michelle Tate and produced a series called Spirits of the Stanley. They're the ones who created the spirit box experiment we all know now as the Estes Method. And that's why it has that name, because it was created in Estes Park. I know on the main feed, we talked about watching that series on Netflix, 28 Days Haunted. Right. Now I know why they said that there was like that 28 days thing experiment that the Warrens came up with, that that's when the paranormal activity gets the most extreme. That's how long the Lutz have stayed in the Amityville house. Ah, gotcha. So there's no real key experiment there. <laughs> it was just based on that. Anyway, in that, the one guy kept calling it like Estes or something else. And I'm like, they are clearly clueless about where this actually took place. Because if you knew right. where it happened and what it was named for, you'd know it's Estes. It's not Estes Park. <laughs> it did make us cringe a few times. Oh, every time he said that, I just wanted to shoot the TV. But uh, we have found that that experiment is one of our favorite things to do. So I am so glad those guys came up with it because we use it all the time and it works really well. Yep, I love it. The Stanley Hotel has such a mystique about it, with so many people experiencing unexplained stuff here. It really does seem to have hauntings going on. Is the Stanley Hotel haunted? That is for you to decide. One of these days, I keep telling you, I'm going to get you back to Colorado so that you can see some of my old stomping grounds and maybe we'll actually stay here. I would love it. But it has to be in the summer. <laughs> oh, good grief. <laughs> Want to thank you guys for tuning in to this Redux episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye.